Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Uncommentary. I am your host, Marty Duran, and this is, oh, you can call it acoustic or you can call it unplugged, uh, but I am just, I had some extra time, and I sat down to uh, answer some questions that a friend of mine sent on this so I'm turning it into a podcast. Uh, some of you will listen and be interested. The rest of you will skip, and that is fine either way. Uh, but I think we'll have a little bit of fun on this one anyway. Uh, before I crank up with five things uh, that I like in five in three different areas, um, I want to remind you that you can support Uncommentary. One time, going to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod uh, for a one-time donation of any amount, really, from a dollar up to a million. Uh, and if you do donate the million, I will give you a special shout out on every podcast episode from now until Jesus comes back. Uh, or if you'd like to start a monthly, uh, very small subscription donation as low as $2 a month, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary. Um, do need to start building the support base a little bit. I uh, have been running on some early gifts uh, through the first part of this year. Uh, season three is right around the corner and season four will end out the year. I have uh, uh, acquired the help, part-time help of a person to schedule uh, and create some bio content that uh, offloads some of that from me. Uh, not a lot, but it is some cost. And then of course, uh, the master audio engineer, James Peach, um, is excellent. And I, w I would love to retain his services because the, uh, the worst thing that could happen is if I have to do the editing for every episode of Uncommentary, uh, that would not be a good thing. So, uh, if you are not yet a, uh, financial supporter, I would really appreciate if you could see your way clear, uh, to skip that Coke and that candy bar and become a supporter for Uncommentary. So what am I doing this episode? This episode of Uncommentary is going to answer this question. What are your five favorite movies, your five favorite books, and your five favorite albums uh, of all time? Uh, so right after I say that, I'm going to step back and nuance it a little bit because I don't know that it's possible for me to say what my five favorites are like all time uh, because things slide in and out of these categories for me uh, pretty regularly. And when I started trying to make this list, uh, I, I really had a hard time determining a top five in each of these categories. So uh, David Schrader, whom I used to work with at uh, Lifeway uh, a long time ago, tweeted at me about this uh, a while back and said, hey, you should do a podcast episode on this. And so in between uh, seasons two and three of Uncommentary, we are going to do this, my five favorite movies, books, and albums. So let's start with albums. Uh, there's probably three that would be in the top spot at various times. Uh, so they're automatically in the top five, but the three that would be in the top spot at almost any time, and probably my very favorite, I think it's safe to say that my very favorite album, album of all time is A Liturgy, A Legacy, and A Ragamuffin Band by Rich Mullins. Uh, if you're familiar with that work, you probably don't need to hear me talk about it very much, but it's just one of those uh, enduring pieces of art, uh, all kinds of instrumentation, uh, all kinds, uh, just lyrical beauty. Uh, the Color Green is one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, Help Me Jesus, the, the, the plaintiveness of that song uh, has encouraged so many people over the years. The, the lyrical beauty of talking about the country where he grew up, uh, the, the descriptions. Uh, he, he was just a genius with words, uh, and the music is just uh, phenomenal. 
And so uh, A Liturgy, A Legacy, and A Ragamuffin Band by Rich Mullins is probably my all-time favorite project. Uh, but swapping out at the top spot periodically is uh, Joshua Tree by U2. Now, I am not one of those guys that caught U2 when they were flaming uh, in the 70s or I guess in the 80s. Um, I was not listening to any kind of secular music at that particular point in my life. Uh, most everything that I listened to was either Southern Gospel or uh, what was then called, I guess it still is called, CCM. Uh, so Keith Green, Rich Mullins, um, Whiteheart, all those groups like that uh, were all that I listened to during those years. So I didn't catch U2 until way, way, way later. They'd released I don't know how many albums before I ever heard anything they'd ever done. Um, and so having listened to a, a number of their projects in the ensuing years, probably the last decade or more, um, Joshua Tree stands uh, alone amongst their works and is just one of the greats of all time as far as I'm concerned. Um, and probably the song that I like the most after Where the Streets Have No Name is Mothers of the Disappeared, which is a song about justice uh, that probably would not be most people's favorite song on the album. Uh, but it is mine. The third that uh, that would rotate in and out of the top spot less frequently than the others is the original Jars of Clay, Jars of Clay. Um, the thing that I like about all of these three is you, you can basically plug them in at any time. You can turn them on at any time ever in any, any um, decade since they've been produced, and they still sound fresh. They don't sound... You can't pin it down. I guess you could, but it's not easy to pin to a specific point in time. Uh, and and the seminal Jars of Clay project when it came out was unlike anything that was in Christian music at the time. Uh, as some of you will remember, the song Flood crossed over and was a mega hit for them. Uh, really elevated their profile. And I've enjoyed a lot of the music that they've done since then, but that project was so stellar and so different uh, and I never get tired of listening to either of those three projects, uh, Jars of Clay, Jars of Clay, uh, A Liturgy, A Legacy, and A Ragamuffin Band by Rich Mullins, and Joshua Tree by U2. So after that, uh, it drops down to what has become my sec uh, a favorite genre of music for me, and that is jazz. So holding down the fourth spot is... Uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas by the Vince Guaraldi Trio, which is one of the great pieces of music that America has ever produced. Um, Linus and Lucy, the fourth track on that, is one of the great, uh, great tracks that has ever been recorded. Uh, if you don't know the story behind how that soundtrack came to go with that cartoon, I really encourage you to look it up. CBS executives hated it. They thought the music was too adult for the cartoon. Uh, but what did they know? They knew nothing. Uh, so it's one of it really is not just a great soundtrack. It's a great jazz soundtrack or a great jazz album. So uh, that is my fourth favorite all time album. It's not just at Christmas time. It's all time. Uh, and then I would say probably still in that same uh, kind of mood, although this is probably considered more blues. I guess it is. Uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble live at the L. That is just such a phenomenal project uh that was stevie ray at the peak of his uh, awesome shredding on guitar and the band was strong uh, just such i've got the video i don't even know if, if they made a separate audio or not so i may be kind of speaking out of turn here uh so top three then the fourth is uh a charlie brown christmas by the vince Guaraldi trio and then fifth would be stevie ray vaughn and double trouble live at the l 
Uh, honorable mentions in uh, that that didn't make it into the top five, but probably could at a different week. Uh, Countdown by Joey Alexander. This is jazz piano, and Joey Alexander is from, uh, I guess, the Philippines or Indonesia maybe, and uh, lives in the states now. And he kind of broke onto the scene when he was like eight or nine years old. Phenomenal jazz pianist. Now travels with uh, with a band uh, periodically, and the, the world class musicians that play with him, and he is just unbelievably good seen him live twice and uh he's just awesome so countdown i think is his sophomore project maybe um a a group that no longer exists called chasing furies their first project was called with abandon uh and it's so good it's so good it's two sisters and a brother i think and um great rock um christian influence type lyrics just man i just love it I, i play it for days at a time uh when I find it, then it gets lost, and I find it again. Uh, more recently, uh, Signs of Light by the Head and the Heart could squeeze into number five periodically. And then uh, John Mark McMillan's The Medicine, which I was way late in catching that. It's about 10 years old. I first heard it for the first time, uh, which is repeating myself, about three months ago. So I was way behind the curve on that one. But The Medicine by John Mark McMillan. So any of those could be in the top five at any time, but those top five I named are ones that I would listen to like over and over and over and over and over again. Five books that I really like. My five favorite books? I don't know. Uh, It's hard for me to say that I have favorite books. Uh, I guess people think, when I think of people and their favorite books, it's books that they would read over and over again. They just can't read, you know, they read this book, you know, once a year. They read that book once a year. Uh, I've got like two books that I've ever read more than once. I just read so many different books. I don't read the same books over and over typically. Uh, But I do have some that have either impacted my life or I've enjoyed them so much um, that I would, I'd feel safe saying that they're in the top five. One is The Devil's Delusion by David Berlinski. Uh, Several years ago when there were a spate of anti-God Uh, new atheist books that came out, one by Richard Dawkins, one by Christopher Hitchens, one by Daniel Dennett, one by Sam Harris. They were the main ones anyway. Uh, David Berlinski, who himself is an agnostic, if not an atheist, wrote the book called The Devil's Delusion as as an attack on the new atheists. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, it wasn't that he was defending uh, personally defending the existence of God or like the reality of Christianity or something like that. It wasn't an, uh, it wasn't that kind of a defense. He basically was just arguing that these guys' arguments are insufficient. They're not proving what they claim they're proved. They're not disproving the existence of God like they think they are. So the entire book is him taking to task the weakness of these guys' arguments, uh, particularly I think he picks on Richard Dawkins more uh, than the rest. Uh, but he is a fantastic writer, amazing turns of phrase, uh, really good philosopher. He's a mathematician. He's written a couple of books on mathematics as well. Uh, But I'm reading that book right now probably for the fourth time since it came out about nine years ago. And um, and I will probably end up reading it about three or four more times because the writing is so good uh, itself. That's The Devil's Delusion by David Berlinski. Uh, Second is another book that I I think I've read more than once, uh, Chasing Francis by Ian Morgan Cron. A number of years ago when I was, uh, I had uh, left a church position that I had been in, which put me out of uh, full-time ministry for uh, for the first time in many, many, many years. 
um, a friend of mine said, hey, I think you need to read this book. So he sent me this book called Chasing Francis by Ian Morgan Cron, and it's, a, it's about a, a large church pastor who has a crisis of faith and um, steps away from his church and winds up going to, uh, I guess, Italy uh, or France. I'm not sure. It's, uh, I don't remember the country that he went to, but he hooks up with a relative who um, is, a, is a monk, and uh, he's a Franciscan friar. And so uh, he hangs out with this guy, and he learns um, a, a new way to experience Christianity. And um, I, if you are in a, uh, if you're listening and you're in like one of those messed up times of life, and, and you're just wondering what's going on, and you know why is God letting X Y Z happen to me? I strongly encourage you. And this goes doubly true if you're in the ministry and you're really struggling. Pick up the book Chasing Francis by Ian Morgan Cron C R O N. Uh, it's available everywhere, uh, but Amazon, of course. Uh, and read it with an open heart and and let God talk to you. It's an amazing, amazing book. Uh, third is the is the first novel on the list, and and actually the only novel on my list. Um, I've read a bunch of John Grisham books, but the one that the only one that I've ever tried to read twice uh, is The Chamber. And uh, when it first came out, I wasn't reading a lot of John Grisham. Uh, and I had friends that would read, like they'd go buy the new book every April or whenever it hit, and they would buy it and read it immediately. And so most of my friends were like, oh, well, this is his anti-death penalty book, and so it's not really as great. It's not like The Firm. It's not just a fun story. You know, he's like lecturing about the death penalty all the way through it. So I didn't read it. And then a number of years later, um, I was like, oh, I never, I never read The Chamber. So I read it, and it really blew me away. The storytelling is fantastic. Uh, the character development is great, uh, and what? And at that time, I had already begun to, to rethink how the death penalty should work and all that kind of stuff. So it didn't bother, it didn't rub me the wrong way as it would have if I'd read it ten years before I did. Um, but what is significant about the chamber to me is that it has a uh, a very very clear conversion scene at the end, uh, a, a very a very open picture of redemption in Christ. And so um, that was like amazing to me. Here's this well, you know, this million selling or bazillion selling novel by one of the top novelists in the country, big thriller writer. Everybody knows his name. Books been made into movies and all this kind of stuff and includes an overtly Christian conversion scene uh, in, in his book. And this is before the Testament, which was almost like Christian fiction. It was so, uh, so obviously Christian oriented. Uh, but the chamber was not obviously Christian fiction. It dealt with a whole lot of uh, Southern, you know, uh, racism and the Klan and bombings and all this kind of stuff and family dynamics and strains and stresses and all this kind of thing. Um, so that quickly became my favorite Grisham book, and it remains uh, one of my very favorite books that I've ever read. So that would be number three. Uh, number four is The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. If you are... Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're listening, this this probably is not news to you, what an impact this book has had on so many people's lives. Uh, I read it probably when I was in high school the first time, uh, and it really did um, set a, a different kind of trajectory uh, in my relationship with God. So that's The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And then last of all is a book that I read only about four years ago, maybe. Uh, it's called Dispatches by Michael Herr. Uh, he's he's passed away, but this is a uh, he was a reporter in the Vietnam War, and he would write stories and send them back. And some of them were published by Rolling Stone. And I'm not sure who published some of the other ones, but eventually these these columns, these stories, these dispatches uh, came together in the form of a book. 
And so the, the way that I found out about it, because it was published before I, you know, was cognizant of anything like this, um, was uh, I was in a book study uh, or a book group at work, and we were looking for, uh, we, had, we had read a book on writing, so we'd, we had read William Zinser's On Writing Well, and so then we wanted to read a book that was well-written. And so I went to, uh, to a website, maybe it was uh, the Telegraph for the U.K., of the 100 best books of the last 50 years or whatever, something like that, uh, and just started scrolling down about and, and reading the, the titles of the books and the, the brief descriptions. And one that caught my eye was a book called Dispatches by Michael Herr. And so um, read the read the review, uh, ordered the book, or talked to the guys that were in the group, and they're like, "Yeah, let's let's do that because we've never, you know, most of us had never read like a war memoir or or a war book uh, like that." So uh, so we did, and uh, it is it's just phenomenal. Um, every writer who wrote about Vietnam, uh, who was alive when this book was published, points to this book as the book that uh that encaptured everything and it, it really is phenomenal now it's got tons of language and and graphic descriptions and stuff like that which war includes uh but it's it's just a phenomenal book and so if you want to read something that's just great writing uh i highly recommend um dispatches by michael Herr. and then honorable mention in this category uh, is the book peace child by don richardson um it's a missionary story. It's one of the first missionary stories that I ever read, and it uh, just blew me away. Uh, phenomenal uh, pictures of the grace of God and the working of God uh, in the, the Sawi people of Irian Jaya back in the, this would have been in the 60s, I guess. Uh, so Peace Child gets an honorable mention and could easily, at like some other week, uh, be in the top five. So that's the five albums, the five books, and now the five movies. So, um, if you decide to watch any of these, do your own research, see if it's what you have. Uh, none of these uh, have, like, sexuality, but a lot of them have language and some of them have violence if, uh, if it's a violent kind of a based movie. Um, but uh, one is Winter's Bone. Uh, this features a pre-Hunger Games Jennifer Lawrence. In fact, she was probably still a teenager when this movie was made or really close to it. Uh, and then John Hawks, who was in Lost and has been in any number of movies since then. Um, who plays her uncle, I think. And uh, he's, this is set in Missouri near the Nebraska line or in Nebraska near the Missouri line, filmed on location, uh, used a lot of extras from the area. Uh, one guy in this movie hadn't, been, hadn't done any acting since he was in like drama club in high school like 15 years before. Um, it's just one of those movies that clicks, and the story is tight, and it's... Uh, it's one of those things, if you're from, if you have ancestors in, in rural parts of America like I do, um, you could watch that movie and think, wow, we were like one bad marriage away from this being my, my life story. Um, and for a lot of people, it would be their life story. It's, uh, there's meth involved and just a lot of stuff. So anyway, I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, but if you pick it up somewhere, I also recommend you watch it sometime and listen to the director's track where they get the director and the producer and whatnot in there and then the movie's playing and they're doing all the talking uh, and they explain how they made this decision to that decision uh, it's really interesting to listen to these like east coast and west coast uh, dwellers uh, how they misunderstood rural America when they went out there they didn't know what to expect and they didn't understand what was going on 
And uh, it's, it's really interesting to hear them talk about it in the, in the context of the movie that they were making. So that's Winter's Bone. Uh, second one is a movie called Children of Men. Uh, it's about 10 years old now. Clive Owen is the main guy in that. And uh, he, and I think Julian Richardson is in that too. And uh, it's based on a book by P.D. James called Children of Men that was written in the 70s or 80s. Um, and it's, uh, it's a phenomenal story. And it has a really, really heavy spiritual emphasis that is so clearly obvious if, um, if you're just thinking about the symbolism uh, in the movie, especially as it comes toward the, the climactic uh, part of the movie, then uh, it's great. Uh, it's, it, there's a lot of violence in this movie, so if that, kind of, if that is not your thing, then you, wanna, you, you probably want to pass this one by. Uh, Fallen is a movie with Denzel Washington and John Goodman. Um, it's, uh, this is one of the more unique movies I think that's ever come out of Hollywood. It is a, uh, it's a movie about the spiritual world, specifically about demons and demonism that treats the subject very seriously. It's not, it's not humor. It's not mockery. It's not this weird supernatural, you know, with angels and demons fighting each other and cutting wings off and heads off and that kind of thing. It's a very subdued presence. So um, Denzel Washington and John Goodman play uh, detectives, and there's these series of murders, uh, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and it turns out it's related to demon possession. And so there's a connection with a lady who's a theologian at one of the local schools. And so it's, it's really heavy in some Roman Catholic theology, uh, which I don't buy into all of it, but, but the, it's the seriousness with which they're discussing the subject that makes the movie so interesting. Um, and there's one particular scene uh, after Denzel Washington starts figuring out that there's a demon, uh, a, de- a demon or demonic presence involved in what's going on. There's this one particular scene that takes place right outside of, uh, of the police station where he worked, um, right on the sidewalk. And it's just really well done to think about what it means to be uh, exploitable by the spirit world, uh, how things can happen to us that we're not even aware of. I mean, it's just a really well-done scene. Uh, again, there's, there's some violence in this, and, and it's uh, a significant amount of language, so you wouldn't want your kids to watch it probably, but um, depending on how old if you have any kids. Uh, but it's a, it's a really, really uh, well-done and interesting uh, movie, and one of those, like I said, that, that takes the spiritual world seriously, which is kind of unusual for Hollywood. Uh, number four is the first summer blockbuster ever made, Jaws. Uh, my kids will tell you that this is one of my favorite movies. Uh, I watch it regularly. Um, it, it's not like I can quote great sequences of it or anything like that, but, um, but of course, you know, all the scenes on the boat, uh, I do, uh, you know, make references to the Kittner kid every now and then and Pippet, uh, and things like that. But, um, and you know, Bruce, the shark didn't work and all that stuff. And we, so we know, but, but there's two, two things about this movie that, that some people don't know. One is the story that, um, that Quint tells about the USS Indianapolis is largely true. It's based on an actual historical event. You can read the story uh, of the sinking of the Indianapolis. And two, they were filming uh, out of, I guess, in the Gulf of Mexico. And at two different parts in the movie, you can see shooting stars in the background. And that's that's legit stuff that happened while they were filming the movie. Uh, There were shooting stars that went behind, and I think Roy Scheider's head, maybe both times. Um, Those were not added in for effect. That actually happened as they were filming. So 
Uh, Jaws would be number four. Uh, and then number five is a movie that uh, a lot of folks may not be familiar with. It's called Road to Perdition. Uh, Tom Hanks stars uh, with Paul Newman and uh, Daniel Craig and Jude Law and a couple other folks you'd probably recognize. Um, and this is set in the 30s. And Tom Hanks is a, uh, a hired gun for the mob. And uh, he runs afoul of the mob because of the mob boss's crazy son. And uh, so he has to take his own son and, uh, and go on the lam to try to get away from uh, the mob because the mob has hired a hitman to kill the hitman. Uh, so, again, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of violence in this. But there's one of the most beautifully choreographed scenes uh, that I've seen in the movies in a long, long time. Uh, takes place uh, pretty near the end uh, on a rainy street. Uh, the main people in the scene being uh, Paul Newman and Tom Hanks and Paul Newman's henchmen. It's just a tremendous piece of cinematography. But the story itself is great uh, because the, the son is only about 12, maybe 10 or 12, something like that. Uh, and he's forced to go on the run with his father, who is a murderer. Uh, he's a murderer for, for, by trade. Uh, the son finds out about it. There's no huge redemption story in this, so it's not like they, you know, wind up at a Billy Graham crusade at the end and, and come to Christ. Um, this is just a story about a father and son who find themselves in a terrible situation uh, and what they do to survive, and the sons, and and then how the son looks back on what happened. It's just it's really well written, well photographed, uh, and all that. And and Jude Law is a real piece of work. <laughs> In this movie, so that's Road to Perdition. So, Winter's Bone, Children of Men, Fallen, Jaws, Road to Perdition. Then, honorable mentions uh, would be Casablanca, which is it really is one of my all-time favorite movies, and I, I do watch that one uh, a good bit. Uh, I, I don't need to explain anything about that; it's awesome. Spotlight, which came out a couple of years ago, that focused on the Spotlight team at the Boston Globe and their investigation into the uh, Catholic Church scandal there in Boston, which broke open things that are still being broke open, um, thanks to them. Uh, World War Z is kind of like my uh, my cotton candy movie. It's just the one I eat when I need a sugar rush, or it's the one I watch when I need a sugar rush. Um, but uh, I'm not a big zombie guy, so I don't watch, like, um, you know, I don't watch, uh, what the thing, Walking Dead, I don't watch that. Uh, don't typically, you know, I don't read zombie books, don't, anything like that. But there's just something about World War Z because of the seriousness with which it takes itself. Uh, and it works within its own uh, structure. Uh, so it doesn't ask me to believe anything outside of the story that it's telling. It's totally fiction and totally believable in its own structure and how it's set up and what's going on. And the acting is good. The action is good. Uh, great narrative pace. I mean, the first first things are happening within like the first three minutes of the movie. Um, so it, it, it's just fun. And so I like that one. And then Last but not least uh, in the, um, the special mentions are, is uh, the 1995 version of The Little Princess starring uh, Liesl Matthews. And um, I have uh, daughters, and so this was one of the movies that we, uh, would ha we have in our house that we would watch periodically growing up that they liked, along with Anne of Green Gables and some others. Uh, but this one, because the subject matter is that um, a very wealthy British man gets called uh, to fight in World War I. He has to send his daughter to a boarding school in America. It's in New York. He goes off to war and is missing and presumed dead. 
Uh, when that happens, they freeze all of his assets, and the the woman who runs the boarding school for girls, Ms. Minchin, uh, can't afford to keep this uh, this child in her lap of luxury that she enjoyed because of her father's money. So she's yanked from her um, well-appointed surroundings and ha- uh, is stuck to live in the attic with the servant girl named Becky, uh, basically a slave. And, uh, and so they then become friends, and it's all about imagination and storytelling. Uh, but there's a scene at the end, uh, probably the, the, the penultimate scene to the movie, I guess, that, but it's the climactic scene, um, where uh, Liesl Matthews, who at this point is probably 10 years old in real life, uh, gives for about three or four minutes one of the most extraordinary performances of any child actor and most adult actors that I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's so believable and so heartrending um, that I would, I would rip my man card in half and I would burn it at the stake uh, if you try to take my, uh, my copy of uh, The Little Princess away. I love that movie. So that would be, that would round out the, uh, the, the also uh, the extra mentions there of the five movies. So five albums, five books, five movies, and I thank Dave Schrader on Twitter for suggesting uh, that I do this episode. Uh, thank you for listening. And I hope that you will come back for season three because we've got some great guests already lined up for season three. Julian Zelizer from Princeton is going to be with me to talk about uh, the year 1968. So an, ep- an entire episode talking about 1968. Uh, Gavin Snyder, who's an urban artist uh, who lives in New York City, is going to be with me to talk about his work. Uh, in urban art. He's Gavin to draw on Instagram. Dana McCain from the Dothan Eagle uh, and from AL.com is going to be with me to talk about uh, being a Christian woman in media. It's a great interview. Uh, and then there are others that are, that are being lined up and some already in the can. So you'll want to stay tuned for season three. So if you haven't had a chance already to rate and review Uncommentary, I really would appreciate if you would do that. And also, if you would share uh, with your friends and family members and encourage them to listen, and if necessary, even teach them how to download a podcast so that they can, uh, they can get caught up on any of the back episodes uh, that they've already missed. Uh, until next time, which is probably going to be in about a week and a half, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary.